Uh, good morning, my name's Chris Edwards. Uh, I'm the Bishop of North Sydney and it's great to celebrate this day with you, wh wherever you are. Um, thank you for having me at your place. Um, uh, it's a real privilege to be able to come in and to speak with you in this way. I wish it weren't like this. I, I do wish that this virus would end and that we could gather together. This is the first Easter in my life where I haven't been uh, at church with uh, brothers and sisters in Christ celebrating as a family. The first time, it's very different. It's very hard. And I know that for some people, uh, you might be feeling very lonely. Well, I want to speak to you of the great news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of the great hope that we have because of Easter. That's what we want to celebrate today. So let me pray, and then we're going to look together at a part of John's gospel. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this day, for, for the hope that it brings, for the message of Christ risen. And I pray that as I preach, uh, people will be reminded of what your word assures us of, that Christ is risen indeed. Amen. Uh, I've been wondering about a response to Easter, given the pandemic, uh, given that people can't go on holidays, the, the Prime Minister has asked people to stay at home. Um, and yet this weekend, more than just about any other, is the one where Australians love to get away uh, because you get Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, some even get Tuesday, but not this year. And I just wonder, what, what's the right response to Easter? I've heard some people say it just won't be the same. Well, in some ways, the celebrations will be different. But Easter and the true meaning of Easter can't be changed because of holiday shifts or, or because we're, we're not allowed out of our homes. The real meaning of Easter is this. Christ is risen. He has risen indeed. So what's your response to Easter? And what's the right response to a risen Christ? What is the, the model response to Jesus is risen? And what we find in this passage that you heard read from John's Gospel is the right response. It comes from the lips of Thomas. He has the right answer in five words. John gives an eyewitness account of this conversation, of what took place. He's a close friend of Jesus. He's a friend of Thomas. And he records these five words when Thomas saw the risen Jesus. He said, my Lord and my God. Thomas' response, my Lord and my God, is a reasonable response because it's based on rational and reasonable thought. It's a personal response. It comes very much from his heart and it's a crucial response. If he really is risen, if he really is the Lord, if he really is God, then it is crucial that we know how to respond to him. So let me talk about those, those three responses, the reasonable response, uh, the personal response and the crucial response, uh, a reasonable response. There are very good reasons for Thomas to say these words to Jesus. He doesn't abandon his brains. Uh, he, he puts together all that he's seen, all that he's heard, now what he sees and now what he hears. And he brings, it brings an incredibly profound change to him and not without good reason. 
He wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to the disciples. We don't know where he was, but we know he wasn't in the room when Jesus first appeared. And so his appearance comes, Thomas hears from his friends, the people he's been with for about three years following Jesus. They say to him, the Lord has risen. Well, Thomas, and I can understand this, Thomas says, I don't believe it. He actually says that I won't believe it unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side. Thomas knew the power of Rome. He knew the hatred of the Jewish leaders. He saw the reality of the arrest and he saw the terrible torture that Jesus went through. He saw Jesus taken away to be killed. None of the Gospels actually say that the disciples saw Jesus on the cross. Oh, John's Gospel does mention that John was there. That's not unusual, though. Uh, For a man to watch a crucifixion, he was putting himself at risk of arrest. Uh, The reason, the logic behind that goes, that if you're standing there watching someone, there's a good chance you may try to take them down off the cross so the Romans would arrest you just for hanging around. Or it could be that you're an accomplice and that you're going to start some sort of fight over the, the friend that you're losing. So men were hurried along past a crucifixion. Uh, women often would watch and attend. Jesus has one disciple that we know for sure was there, and it was John. We don't know where Thomas was, but Thomas had been with him in the garden and fled. Thomas had seen the court convened and he headed for the hills. Thomas knew that Jesus was dead and he could not be convinced that he was alive again unless he sees the nail marks in his hands, unless he can put his hand in his side and unless he gets all of that, he's not going to believe. I know people who would say the same sort of thing today. Um, For them, seeing is believing, and if you can't see it, you don't believe it. As simple as that. But Jesus comes among his disciples, and we're told by John that it's a week later. They're in a room again, and the doors are closed. Jesus' appearance is for Thomas's sake and for mine. It's so that people could believe. And look what happens. A week later... His disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, listen to what he says to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. (laughs) Reach out your hand, put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Did he touch him? We don't know. Did he put his fingers in the wounds? We don't know. But we do know that he saw him and we do know what he said. Five words. My Lord and my God. And there's good reason for saying it. Did you know that 500 people saw Jesus alive at one time? That's a crowd, isn't it? 500 people saw Jesus alive after the crucifixion. After the crowds had seen him killed, 500 people saw him alive. He appeared to his disciples at least four times because they wrote about it four times. He spoke with them, he ate with them, he taught them. He appeared to two of them alone as they walked along the road. He he taught them. 
He explained the Old Testament to them. He, he went to the, the books of Moses and he explained all the law and the prophets to them so they could understand who the Messiah really was and that Jesus was the anointed one, the king. He shared bread and wine with them and they, it dawned on them who it was. He appeared to Mary. He appeared to James, his half-brother. <laughs> often, often family are the hardest ones to convince of something, aren't they? And yet Jesus' brother James is so convinced that Jesus is alive again, he dedicates his life to the proclamation of Jesus being risen from the dead. In fact, he gave his life because of that proclamation. He was literally killed for telling people that Jesus had risen from the dead. In the Old Testament, we're told that God's visitation into this world would be as a king. But the king wouldn't be like the kings that they'd become used to. Uh, he would be more like a servant. God's anointed one would be despised and rejected. The prophet Isaiah says that his life would end in death at the hands of unjust men. But then he would rise from the dead. The precise place of his birth was foretold in the Old Testament. The visitors who would come and bring gifts were foretold in the Old Testament. The place of his upbringing is mentioned in the Old Testament. The manner of his life is spoken of hundreds of years before he's born. The nature of his death is predicted in detail, that it would be on a tree, that people would gamble for his clothes, that his hands and his feet would be pierced. All of that written down a thousand years before he was born. And his resurrection was spoken of centuries before he arrived. Thomas had all of that in his background. All these promises, all these prophecies, all these predictions, Thomas had grown up understanding them in part. Now he gets it. The Old Testament said the Messiah would die. Thomas saw that. The Old Testament said the Messiah would rise. Thomas now sees that. And the accounts we rely on are the accounts of eyewitnesses to that event. And like many, he accepted the evidence and came to that logical, rational, reasonable conclusion that based on the evidence, based on the promises, it's reasonable to conclude that Jesus is risen my Lord and my God. But it's not just reasonable, it becomes very personal at that point. Do you notice what he says? My Lord, my God. Christianity is quite different to most religions in this. It is about a person. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. It's not about rituals and rites. It's not about religious habits and practices. Those things have been attached to it. But let me tell you this, as clearly as I can, Christianity is about the man, Jesus Christ. It's about the person who he revealed himself as. He said he was the Messiah to a woman at a well. He said he and the Father were one. He said to the teachers of the law uh, that were his contemporaries who were around Jerusalem and Israel, he said to them, before Abraham was, I am. That is a claim of divinity. He did things that God was famous for. He restored the paralyzed. He healed the sick. He gave sight to the blind. He raised a dead man to life. 
He commanded the sea and the wind and they obeyed him. These are all the activities of God. He, he fed the crowds in the wilderness by the grass, by the sea. He fed them with bread and fish. Just as God had done that in the time of the Exodus in feeding the people in the wilderness with bread, manna from heaven. Thomas didn't simply look at the evidence and treat it like information that might be something useful, some kind of fascinating tidbit. No, what he did was he took the evidence and it became very personal to him. The resurrection of Jesus to Thomas was not just an interesting fact that he could store away for some trivial pursuit game. I have a friend named Craig. Uh, Craig has got a property up at Oberon and there's a river in it and there are platypus that swim in it. And he said to me, um, platypus, people don't know much about them. You know, they're poisonous. I didn't know they were poisonous. Um, so I went to that source of all understanding and knowledge, Google. I discovered they are. You, you can check me out if you don't believe me. Platypus have got a poisonous spur. They're poisonous. They're cute. They're little, but they're poisonous. Fascinating. Isn't that fascinating? I was fascinated when Craig told me. My wife, Belinda, tells me that I snore. Now, I deny that and demand evidence. Um, mind you, I have some evidence, a pretty sore throat in the morning sometimes. And then the testimony of my grandson has made me believe that it is true. I bet you're fascinated by that little tidbit of information. There are some facts that are interesting and fascinating, but they have no personal impact on you at all, right? But that isn't how it is when Thomas receives the evidence of Jesus being alive again. When he's faced with the truth of that, it becomes very, very personal to him. Thomas's response shows us that he's convinced Jesus is God. And Thomas comes to understand that if Jesus is God, then he needs to submit himself to the Lordship of Jesus. He needs to sit under his command, to obey him, to follow him to trust him. Hearing this, believing this, is tough in an age when we don't like to submit to anything or anyone. I have a friend, George, who when he was faced with this evidence from the New Testament, when he read this account for himself, when he looked into the arguments around the evidence, didn't just take it as a little piece of interesting information. He took it very, very personally. As the evidence gained weight, it changed George. He'd been living with his girlfriend for a couple of years and they had a happy enough relationship. But once he recognised the fact that Jesus was God, Jesus was his Lord, then simple suggestions from Jesus were not the things that he said. He gave commands and he took the lordship and the commands of Jesus very personally, very seriously. And he came to submit his life and his career and his relationships to the commands of Jesus because George had come to understand that Jesus was his Lord and his God. It's not irrational to believe the evidence that Jesus has risen from the dead is very reasonable. But once you accept that truth, it can become very personal. I'll never forget the day 
Belinda told me she was pregnant with our daughter Nicole. We had the evidence. We, one of us had been very sick. We were convinced of the truth of it. And boy, was it personal. It changed our lives. That's the kind of truth that Thomas has come to accept. That's the evidence that he's realised. It's, it's very reasonable. It's very rational. It's very personal. And what's his response? It's not to treat this information that Jesus has risen as just another fact or piece of information that's interesting. What's the right response to Easter? What's the right response to the risen Lord? It's a very personal one. The right response is one to recognise that Jesus is my Lord and my God. And finally, I want to say how crucial this is. This is vitally important. It is so crucial to every person. Let me take you to the end of the chapter very briefly as we close. John has a deliberate purpose in writing his account of Jesus' life, the gospel that we call John's gospel. Look with me in verse 31. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Throughout this book, John has been linking belief in Jesus with life. Uh, he opens in chapter 1 saying, To all who receive him, Jesus, to those who believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. Children inherit all that their father has. To all those who believe. In chapter 3, the Son of Man, which is a way of referring to Jesus, um, Jesus says he must be lifted up, literally on the cross, so that everyone who believes may have eternal life. Or this most famous quote from John chapter 3, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Again in chapter 3 at the end in verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Chapter 5, Jesus said, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Do you see how John links belief and life throughout this gospel? Chapter 6, Jesus again, My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I'll raise them up on the last day. It doesn't get clearer than John chapter 6, verse 47. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. Do you see belief and life, belief and life linked together throughout John's gospel? And so as he closes this work and as he comes to his climax, it is no coincidence, it's no accident that there is a conversation with Thomas about believing so that he can have life. John makes a very, very crucial point here. It is critical that you believe. It is crucial if you want life to trust in Jesus, that he has risen from the dead. One day, we will all face the God who made us. My question for you is, will you stand there as someone who believes in Jesus and who has received life?
Or will you stand there without Jesus? What's the right response to Easter? Thomas had it right in five words. My Lord and my God. And he says them to Jesus. And I invite you to do exactly the same. In your heart, to consider Jesus. To speak with him and to say to him, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. It's reasonable given the evidence of the empty tomb. It's personal because it will transform your life and it's crucial because without this belief in Jesus, without this trust in him, we live in a world that is hopeless. Literally. As we celebrate this Easter in this different way, I appeal to you to come to believe in Jesus, not as an interesting fact, not as some information you've collected, not as a religious habit that you've gained, not as some sort of rite or holiday or whatever. But in this year, 2020, when it is so different because we can't gather, when it is so different because of the pandemic, make it different because you can turn to Jesus and say to him, Jesus, you are my Lord and my God. Easter is our greatest day as Christians. Make this your greatest day, not because uh, of your circumstances, but because of your relationship with Jesus. Amen. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for what you accomplished on the cross. And Heavenly Father, we praise you for the way that you raised Jesus from the dead conquering death, breaking its grip on us, shattering its hold and assuring us because the Jesus is risen, we too can have life forever. Amen.